isolation, very much part of all of our experiences of the COVID pandemic. Well, I'm looking out on the ocean with the waves rolling in. So you're in Oregon, you said? I'm in Oregon. Uh, we have a home on the South Oregon coast, very isolated. We can't see any neighbours. This conversation from season two was recorded during the early phases of lockdown. Welcome to this encore presentation of our chat with Kip Thorne. In the 70s, I thought uh, we would have this uh, done within uh, one decade, two decades at the most. This is Nobel Prize Conversations. You just heard 2017 Nobel Physics Laureate Kip Thorne. And I was quite wrong. uh, In the end, it required nearly 50 years. And so I think I would have done it anyway. I really saw that the payoff is being absolutely enormous. What costs a billion dollars and takes 50 years to build and perfect? LIGO, a machine to detect gravitational waves. These waves were predicted by Einstein's theory of general relativity, but were first measured by the LIGO detector in 2015. And in 2017, Kip Thorne was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics, together with Rainer Weiss and Barry Barish, for decisive contributions to the LIGO detector and the observation of gravitational waves. The host for Nobel Prize Conversations is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. This podcast is produced with the support of our Nobel International Partners, 3M, ABB, Ericsson and Scania. So here's our conversation with Kip Thorne about his friendship with Stephen Hawking, our prospects for time travel and sizing up the solar system with a four-foot sun. First, though, Einstein. I thought we'd better start with Einstein, since that's where it all began. It seems so incredible that uh, equations that he wrote over 100 years ago should still be feeding the imagination and experiments of physicists now and into the future. Does it strike you as just amazing how much those general relativity equations contain? That is quite amazing. Then once you have inserted properties of matter, they contain basically everything uh, that's classical. It's not quantum mechanical. And uh, that really is quite remarkable. That they've lasted for 100 years is not terribly surprising. Uh, Newton's lasted for a lot longer than that before Einstein replaced them. But it is just a indication of their enormous power. And did it have to be Einstein who came up with general relativity, or was there really nothing particular about him and and somebody else would have done it if he hadn't done it soon enough? Well, I expect somebody else would have done it ultimately, but not in that same time frame. There was nobody else looking in that direction for a description of gravity. It was radically different from what anybody else was pursuing, except that Hilbert, after conversations with Einstein and reading some of Einstein's early efforts in this direction, 
uh, he jumped onto it and uh, and uh, pursued it in parallel. But without Einstein having started in this direction and gotten almost there before Hilbert uh, jumped in, it would not have happened in probably, I would guess, for several decades, at least one, maybe right. two. Can you say what it was that was allowed him to do it? Is it possible to go back in time and answer that question? I think the key thing was his intuition that uh, gravity would not be described as a field or a force that lives in the space and the time that of special relativity. Special relativity, which Einstein and others had formulated, uh, others played a major role there, described space and time as what we call flat. It's like uh, the surface of a flat table. It's Euclidean uh, geometry, but carried into time as well. And the very natural way that one would describe gravity then was as a force, a field that lives in that uh, flat space and time. And it was Einstein's insight that in 1912 that uh, it was much more likely that gravity was associated with a curvature or warping of space and time that was so profound. And it, it broke the mold of the direction that other people were, uh, were pointing, broke the mold of the natural directions. He had this intuition that was just much deeper than anybody else of his time. And I think many of us would say than anybody else in history of what they called natural philosophy then, uh, <laughs> physics today. Thank you. That was beautifully described. Um, we'll, we'll come to all this later, but I just thought, I mean, since you've made your life the study of warped space-time and derived from his notions of warped space-time are all these amazing phenomena. I just wanted to start by asking, what, what's your favorite phenomenon of warp space-time? Well, my favorite phenomenon that we are really studying now is the what John Wheeler called geometrodynamics. It's the wild, dynamical behavior of the shape of space and the rate of flow of time that is triggered by, for example, the collision of black holes. We're studying... Uh, then the analog of a storm at sea, a wild storm at sea, where instead of the shape of the surface of the ocean that is writhing, it's the shape of space and the rate of flow of time that's writhing. General relativity and geometrodynamics were later stations in Kip Thorne's career. But his journey through space and time began close to home. Home was the small mountain town of Logan, Utah, where Kip was born in 1940 to an agronomist father and an economist mother. His curiosity about science was sparked when he was eight years old. So my mother took me to a lecture about the solar system given by a professor at the local university. And I immediately fell in love with the idea of the sun and the planets and, uh, and what is really out there. And that's what got me hooked. And then she encouraged me through various projects. Uh, this was at age eight. That's young to find your vocation, your, your love in life. Young. It was very lucky. What developed the interest? Because I suppose you can kindle it at age eight, but you have to keep it going. Or maybe it was just self-sustaining for you. Maybe you just found that it, your appetite but was so great. It was somewhat self-sustaining. She, we, got, we did a little project right after that. And we went to that lecture where we 
she showed walked me through scaling the actual sizes of the sun and the planets and distances between them down to a scale of our local neighborhood. So we uh, drew in chalk the sun on the corner sidewalk in front of the house. And then the planets on down the street and Pluto was in the next town. And uh, that was really quite startling. And the planets were so tiny compared to this four foot sun. uh, And so that actual process uh, ingrained this whole thing in me. And uh, then I started reading uh, popular things about astronomy and, and then physics. And there was an astronomer at the University of Oregon. My mother had grown up in Eugene, Oregon. We would go visit her hometown in the summer times. And I got met him, Hugh Pruitt. And he wrote a column in the uh, Oregonian newspaper, and which I read. And so there was, in some sense, a role model there. The drawing of the solar system on the sidewalk is very clever. I suppose what it emphasizes is just how much space there is around in between the objects, and that's... that's Precisely, and and to see that at age eight is uh, profoundly uh, intriguing, exciting. You chose to work on relativity quite early, and in a way it was a... It was a prescient choice because it wasn't the happening place that it became when you chose it. <laughs> How did you know? How did you know it was a good choice? Well, I fell in love with relativity as a kid. At age 13, I read a book titled One, Two, Three, Infinity by George Gamow, who was a great physicist and cosmologist. And so I wanted from that point on to really understand these ideas of Einstein and and, uh, warped space-time. And that continued to be a central driving force for me as an undergraduate, but there was the only relativity course taught at Caltech, a very good one. Uh, It was taught by uh, H.P. Robertson, uh, who died in an automobile accident uh, between my uh, third and fourth year, and I was going to take it in the fourth year, so I was sort of devastated (laughs) that uh, he had passed away and that the course was not being given. Uh, But I went into the library and browsed through the physics journals to see who was uh, doing interesting work on relativity then in my senior year, my fourth year. And... uh, I discovered that there, there was really interesting work being done by John Wheeler and Charles Misner and the people or students around him at Princeton. That's the only really exciting work that I could see was being done. And so uh, I set my heart on going to Princeton working with Wheeler, which I did do. But as an indication of how it was looked at in those days, I did a wonderful project in theoretical astrophysics with Jesse Greenstein, who was one of the great astrophysicists of that era and sort of the lead figure in astrophysics at Caltech. I did this between my junior and senior years. And then I had a conversation with him before I went to Princeton, said I was going to Princeton to work on relativity with John Wheeler. And uh, Jesse said to me, he said, you be careful. It's unlikely that relativity is relevant to anything in the universe except the Big Bang and uh, the birth of the universe, and that's all. And, and we just don't have uh, the tools to observationally study the Big Bang, and so uh, I'm afraid you're going to wind up in a dead end. 
that was a very, I'd say it was the dominant attitude among astronomers and probably most physicists of, of that era. So in part, it, it was luck. These things are luck to a fair degree that, that I was fascinated by something that was about to take off. Amazing. Um, so you, you went on to Caltech and did you find that you were um, just a natural kind of physics undergraduate straight away? Were you, were you switched on? and Not straight away. Well, I was switched on in terms of enthusiasm, but I had a rough time the first year and a half. My preparation was not as good as those who come from big cities. Um, and uh, my mind uh, works uh, substantially more slowly than most of my colleagues. And so I had to find ways to compensate for the fact that I read more slowly, I thought more slowly, I figured things out more slowly. Uh, and uh, it took me about a year and a half to develop compensation mechanisms to where I could really keep, keep up with the work. I, I remember particularly they gave us a, a speed reading test and I read so slowly that they said you'll never keep up with your work if uh, you don't learn to read faster. And so they put me in a, a, a course not for credit to learn how to read faster. I didn't have time to pursue that course because my other homework was so much more interesting and uh, on my back. Isn't it interesting that cause I can't imagine them teaching speed reading these days. That was a particular fad in, I guess this was 1958. It was a fad at that time. And the fads even uh, invaded Caltech. Caltech, together with MIT, is the institution that operates the LIGO detector, the project for which Kip Thorne received his share of the Nobel Prize. With his base in California, he made many exciting connections, not least his Hollywood connections, which we'll return to. But now, let's focus on another famous connection his relationship with the renowned theoretical physicist and best-selling author Stephen Hawking. Although they didn't agree on everything to do with physics, they shared a special bond of friendship. I was inspired by him. We almost always were working in different directions, different subfields of relativity and cosmology. The only time that we ever overlapped was when we were both working on whether it would be possible to go backward in time. And uh, and there I wrote a paper which he critiqued, and then he wrote a paper which I refereed, and then we had some arguments, and uh, then we finally uh, had a meeting of the minds that it's the laws of quantum gravity, which we don't understand well yet, that control whether you could ever go backward in time. That was the only only point in our career, and it was only for a year or so that we were working in the same topics. The basis for our friendship was personal. Uh, we just hit it off uh, personally. And so when we got together, we were less often talking about physics than we were about life and what was going on in his personal life, what was going on in my personal life. It was a uh, unusual kind of relationship. And the fact that he opened up to me in this way where he opened up maybe to only one other person in this way was uh, quite uh, remarkable and I felt uh, very lucky to have that kind of a friendship with him.
That's extraordinary. Um, for most people, I suppose that the image of him is the general public image of him is is defined by the motor neuron disease that took over. But did you know him before that disease as well? No, I first met him in at a physics conference in 1965. This was, I think, two years after he contracted the disease. First year after contracting it, he uh, was struggling to figure out how to deal with this in his life. By the end of that first year, he was starting to be tremendously productive uh, in uh, physics, theoretical cosmology. And I met him at a conference where he gave a lecture about the early phases of his work, uh, showing that uh, the, re there really had to have been a Big Bang singularity at the beginning of the universe, that uh, the universe really was expanding out of an era when everything was so dense and so compact that likely the laws of physics as we know them just didn't work. And uh, he, at this conference, there was some rumor, or maybe it was announced that he was giving us a talk about his work in a particular room. And so uh, I went there. It was a room that probably would normally hold, as I recall, maybe 20 people, and there were 30 or 40 jammed in there. And he was walking with a cane. His speech was somewhat affected, so it was a little bit, but not very hard to understand him. He was a little shaky, but it was not extreme at all. And this was my introduction to Stephen. I can't let the reference to time travel go by without asking, so is it the unknowns about quantum gravity that, that stop us understanding? Yes, that's, that's what Stephen and I both uh, came to, be to believe. Given that one, there are things that one doesn't understand about quantum gravity that, that, that stop one coming to a full answer, do you think it is possible to travel back in time? <laughs> I am very dubious. I doubt it very much. Uh, but I certainly can't prove it. I mean, I have things that I have believed at this level of confidence uh, have on occasion, I've been proved to be totally wrong in the past. So uh, I announced that I think it's unlikely with some trepidation. Can you study such a topic dispassionately or do you? is it hard not to want it to be so? Uh, yeah, it's hard. Let me back up. I have no trouble with the issue that I do want it to be so. And I want it to be so more because that would mean that there's something very deep about nature that we really don't understand. And it becomes an enormous and exciting challenge for me and other physicists to really sort out what's going on. And would be the beginning, if it turned out to be true, the beginning of a struggle to, to reformulate a lot of our ideas about how nature works. And, it would uh, trigger a, a revolution. So that's a weird way, uh, a weird aspect of wanting it to be so, uh, quite different from the very sad cases of people who write to me, having had a dear loved one die and uh, just wanting desperately to be able to go back in time and, uh, and uh, change what had happened. Uh, it's a different kind of longing to have it be so. But the fact that I would like it to be so is not at a level that I think it distorts my, my work on this. <laughs> what I really want to do is I, I want to know the answer. And uh, that's the dominant thing. And the hope that uh, the foundations of physics will crumble 
is secondary. That was a fascinating answer. Unexpectedly fascinating. I mean, it reveals new worlds and new ways of thinking. If you could travel back in time, would it be something that um, in time uh, humanity would learn to manipulate? Yes, I think so. I think so. But, uh, you know, those are speculations that are so far from where we are today that I don't think my thinking so is worth much. Your own work was, I suppose, broadly moved more and more towards gravity waves as the technology surrounding the possibility of observing them advanced. Would that be fair to say that it was a building wave, to use waves again, throughout your career? It came in successive waves. Very early, I began to think together with students and colleagues about what you could do with gravitational waves if they could be discovered. And it was a very exciting prospect when you looked at the things you could study about black holes and warped space-time, about uh, uh, neutron stars, about the birth of the universe, and, and so forth. It, it uh, was clear it would create a revolution in our understanding of the universe. It would teach us about aspects of the universe that we probably could not be, learn about in any other way. And that was around 1970, 71, 72. And my thinking about it was triggered in, to a fair extent by Joe Weber, who did the first gravity wave experiments in the 1960s and on into the early 70s. Whomever could measure gravitational waves would gain the ability to study cosmic events like supernovas, colliding black holes, and indeed the birth of the universe itself, an immense scientific prize. In pursuit of this prize, physicist Joseph Weber created his detector, the Weber Bar, a two-metre aluminium cylinder tuned to act like a resonator for the gravitational shock created by a supernova. These efforts proved unsuccessful. It turned out that an immense prize required a similarly immense machine. thought he was seeing gravitational waves, which he was not, and turned out in the end. So it was in that that ambience of, of that this was going on. But for me, the issue then became, is the technology likely to advance to the point where we can really succeed in creating gravitational wave astronomy? Is that going to happen in the next few decades? And if it is, I wanted to be involved and I wanted Caltech to be involved. Thorne and his colleagues believed laser interferometry a method to detect tiny disturbances in a beam of laser light could be used to register gravitational waves. And so the mammoth LIGO detector was born with its 4,000 metre tunnels and ultra-sensitive instruments. It was a great advancement in technology and quite a large gamble. That was an enormous technological challenge, and we were far from there uh, in the 1970s. But we, all, we knew by 78, 79 that that was where we had to be. And uh, the issue was that it seemed clear by then also that uh, it would be near impossible for the bars to reach that sensitivity, but the interferometers had a pretty good shot at it. But the interferometers had to be so complex, it was also clear, 
that by the late 70s, early 80s. So complex that it would be a tremendous challenge also for them to build something that is capable of removing all sources of noise at this incredibly, exquisitely tiny level of measurement. There's so many things could go wrong. It would have to be a really complex instrument in order to deal with all of them and bring them all under control. And that was the big issue. Uh, indeed, it wound up that complex, uh, an unbelievably complex uh, uh, instrument. And so my friend and colleague, Vladimir Braginsky in Moscow, kept working on the bars, encouraging us to work on the interferometers. But he thought that these things would be so complex, it would likely never succeed. He was very deep into all the technology. In the late 80s, as we, we were in the process of actually writing our construction proposal that succeeded and got us off the mark and running with funding to build LIGO. Uh, he came and visited Caltech and MIT, saw where we were at, saw our plans, and probably, probably saw a first draft of this construction proposal, went home and shut down his bar effort uh, in Moscow overnight and became a LIGO collaborator. Gosh, it, it's very interesting to an outsider to see how, in a way, how certain you were that you were doing the right thing and how long-term you have to be in your planning. It, there's a great deal of kind of belief and resilience and, and just um, sustained effort in that. <laughs> I certainly did not know how long it would be. In the 70s, I thought uh, we would have this uh, done within uh, one decade, two decades at the most. And I was quite wrong at uh, in the end, it required nearly 50 years. And so I think I would have done it anyway. I really saw the, the payoff as being absolutely enormous. But, uh, you know, I, I and I think others, maybe I as a theorist was more naive than, than Ray Weiss was, but uh, I underestimated how long it would take. I know there was um, there were months and months of data crunching afterwards, but where were you on the 14th of September 2015? By the day that, that the signal came in in 2015, I had been off in this other land uh, working the issue of the computer simulations, and I was deeply engrossed in extracting insights about geometric dynamics, the dynamics of warped space-time from the simulations, and the signal came in. And I had an email from a young colleague at Caltech who was deeply involved in the data analysis. And he said, go to this particular internal LIGO website. We may have a detection. I went there. I looked at the uh, data, which had all been uh, compiled by a computer, pre-programmed computer without uh, humans touching it. And I was just flabbergasted because the signal was too good to be true. Uh, and so I was very skeptical at first because it was just too strong a signal, too perfect a signal. And it was, it was the signal that your computer simulations had predicted? It was the signal of the computer simulation, not mine, but... Uh, that your team's, computer. okay. And so, yes, it was. And, and uh, the uh, computer simulations were absolutely central to understanding the signal and, and uh, learning that this was... Uh, Two black holes, one twenty-nine solar masses, the other 
uh, I guess it was 34 solar masses colliding uh, at a distance of 1.2 billion light years. It must be impossible to describe the feeling of seeing that um, half a century after you started looking for it. The reactions of people who were working on it were quite different in interesting ways. For me, it was a sense of profound satisfaction that I had chosen to put the great majority of my research group's efforts into trying to help the experimenters pull this off. And the choices I had made had been wise choices. You know, you're never sure at all uh, whether you're going in the right direction uh, at the time. or Often you're not sure. I wasn't sure, but I uh, was confident in the end game. And that I had made the choice to go off and and catalyze uh, the computer simulations when I did was also a very important choice. So I had a sense of profound satisfaction. Ray Weiss, who uh, was the lead experimenter in conceiving LIGO, and uh, co-founder with me and Ron Drever of the LIGO project. Ray's reaction, well, there were several aspects of it. The one that uh, was particularly strong was a sense of profound relief because uh, he and we had uh, convinced the U.S. government to spend $1.1 billion of taxpayer money. We had... uh, attracted uh, nearly a thousand, I guess more than a thousand uh, other people to come in and work on this and uh, who were staking their careers on this with no detections. He was feeling kind of guilty until the detection came in. The younger people who had been working on it for a shorter period of time, it was just euphoria. It was pure euphoria. Besides being known for helping discover gravitational waves and receiving the Nobel Prize, Kip Thorne is also known as the Hollywood physicist. Since leaving Caltech in 2009, he's worked with artists, musicians and filmmakers at the crossroads of science and the arts. For example, the physics at the core of the blockbuster movie Interstellar come from a film idea by Kip Thorne. When Chris Nolan took the helm of the project, he rewrote the plot, but he wasn't allowed by Thorne to rewrite the laws of physics. The challenges were indeed great when Hollywood's special effects collided with the film's black hole. I uh, provided the equations, tested them out using Mathematica to produce movies that were precise computer-generated movies of what it would look like if uh, you were near a black hole that had a disk of hot gas around it. And we even had to uh, develop a whole new way to generate these movies because the standard way of tracing light rays that come from the hot gas and whirl around the black hole a few times and come to the camera, the standard way didn't work. Produced flick, flickering on an IMAX screen uh, because light rays got pried apart by what we call the tidal gravity of the black hole. So we had to create a whole new way of even doing these uh, visualizations where we propagated light beams that overlapped with each other from the uh, hot disk around the black hole to the camera. So all the images that you see were generated in that manner 
it's really what you would see if uh, a very high resolution versions of what you would see if uh, you were near a black hole with a hot disk of gas around it. Isn't it amazing that um, for most of us, the closest we'll get to being astrophysicists is going to the movies to see Interstellar. And if we look closely, we'll see Einstein rings around a black hole and all these things. Yes, it is. it's really quite, quite remarkable. And it was a wonderful experience working with, with them on this. And after uh, we were all done, we wrote a paper for a physics journal, Classical and Quantum Gravity, which is a journal that comes out of the UK. And uh, in that paper, it's about a 40-page paper that has all the equations that we use to generate uh, these images. It uh, describes the new method that uh, we devised to propagate light beams to generate the images. And it is, at this point, by a very large margin, the uh, most widely downloaded paper from that <laughs> journal in history. <laughs> but it, it, in fact, is becoming a foundation for future uh, visualizations by both astrophysicists and uh, Hollywood uh, movie makers. You, you depict wormholes in that movie as well. That's um, same way with uh, computer visualizations. But they, but they, we, but we don't. But those one doesn't know whether they exist or not. We don't know right? whether they exist or not, but uh, we can postulate the shape of a wormhole. We presume the wormhole was spherical. It would be hard to conceive of one that wasn't spherical unless it was dynamical. And so uh, then we postulate a particular shape. How long is the throat of the wormhole? How big is the mouth of the wormhole? And so we uh, had... A, lots of different shapes that we did calculations for and we gave Christopher Nolan film clips and images of what do things look like with wormholes of various shapes. He chose the shape in a manner that produced the most interesting looking images for the movie. Well, you, you clearly enjoy this very much indeed. Is it just fun you do or is there more of a reason behind it? Well, yes, it was fun, but I think... I was inspired by George Gamow to get into astrophysics, uh, well, in, into relativity uh, and physics uh, when I was 13, reading 1, 2, 3, Infinity. And I have uh, long had a desire to inspire the next generation of young people to become interested in science. And uh, there's nothing more powerful for inspiring young people, I think, than, uh, than movies and video games but things that have a lot of visualization in them. So this, in some sense, was my, my passing George Gamow's message on to the next generation. It's a lovely idea that, um, that Kip Thorne is the 20th century George Gamow. <laughs> so I would like to think of that, that, uh, that I, through Interstellar and other things that I'm doing, uh, at the interface between science and the arts, that I'm able to inspire people, particularly young people, about science in the way that George Gamow inspired me. As a last thought, what science arts project are you working on currently? What are you doing right now? Well, my uh, main effort at the moment is that might be a little surprising, but it's a, a book that is a collaboration with a painter. It's about the warped side of the universe, things made from warped space-time black holes, the uh, Big Bang, birth of the universe, and so forth. And it's a book of my uh, verse, paint, uh, poetry, and her paintings. It's an attempt to make something that, uh, to put it in a sort of a silly, grandiose way, 
something Homeric, a very, very long chain of verse that's all devoted to trying to get, convey the ethos of warp space-time through integrated verse and paintings. Yes, I, I would have thought if, if you're... In- if the intention is to attract young people into it, just the idea, just the, the very the very phrase, the warped side of the universe is enough to get people excited. Gets me excited. It's been an enormous pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much indeed. Well, I've enjoyed it greatly. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. You've just heard Nobel Prize Conversations, a podcast series with Adam Smith by Filt Hinterland, for Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Sally Henriksen. And I'm Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. This is episode one of our second season. You can find season one on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.